This is easier than standing. Uh, my name is Bob. I'm a grateful recovering member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon and Alateen. First, I'd like to thank uh, the committee and Todd for inviting us uh, and for the lovely dinner we had last night and for the entertainment that Joe and his lovely wife Patty have extended to us. One of the, one of the benefits of speaking uh, uh, at these types of conferences is meeting the people and meeting the uh, people on the committee and, and the, the real doers and shakers who put these conferences on. I've been on the host committee on several conferences, and I know the work that goes into them. And I think that the I'd like to uh, take the time to acknowledge that and to give a hand to all those people on the committee. When I, when I speak at... Uh, conference like this where there's a lot of AAs and in presence I have a uh, I have a uh, conflict I, I don't I don't know exactly uh, how I should introduce myself I sometimes think that I should introduce by saying my name is Bob by the uh, help of this program good sponsorship and the steps I haven't found it necessary to manage manipulate or control since Easter Sunday of 1983 <laughs> That I could I could tell you that, and then I could tell tell you that I've been married three times to three alcoholics, and I could sit down, and that that you'd know all about me, you'd know all what what has happened to me because that's the story of my life, trying to manage and manipulate the alcoholics around me. You know I love alcoholics, and uh, it's like I got a sign on the top of my head, and there's there's some extra space up there with a flashing light that says I love alcoholics on there. That's really not a bald head up there. That's a solar panel for a sex machine. <laughs> but the... <laughs> well... But it's... We really... I really... I really enjoy being around alcoholics. They live on the edge. I saw, I saw a bumper sticker the other day, and it said, If you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. And we love that. Uh, many times in meetings, we we talk about the 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 drama of living with an alcoholic. It's exciting sometimes. It's just as if it's our job to keep them from falling over the the abyss. But we like the excitement of living on the edge. And uh, the problem is when we get frightened and we want to get back from that edge, the alcoholic says, "What do you mean? Let's keep going." And uh, and then that's when the resentment starts and, and problems arise. I guess the the uh, in that case sometimes that's that's when we get into that controlling thing. Sometimes I think I'm like the the Boy Scout who uh, who's got to do his good deed each day, so he's taking his little old lady across the street, and she says, "But I don't want to go across the street." And he says, "But you got to go across the street because I got to do my good deed for the day." And that's what so many of us uh, in Al-Anon do. We do a lot of these things under the guise of helping. We say, well, I'm only helping. If you would just do it, I'll take care of you. Uh, a lot of the relationships I've been in, I just knew that if these people uh, did what I told them to do and uh, would uh, just straighten up, they'd be okay, then I'd be okay. And a lot of that... Uh, Energy on my part is not generated out of the sake of goodness for them, but it's out of fear for myself. I fear a loneliness. I might fear abandonment, but it's fear. We've I've, several of the speakers today have talked about fear, and I think that's the thing that gets so many of us in to our various programs. It's the fear. It's a fear that we're not going to be okay in this life, and then the whole. I've come to understand that the whole trip is from from uh, the trip comes from fear. That's where the trip begins, and it ends in in hope. And the program, as I understand it, is set up to get us from fear into hope, and to stay in the hope and out of the fear, and to know 
that regardless of what happens in my life, I'm going to be okay. And it took me some time to get to that point where I can say today that that my future is not any of my business. It's it's the business of my God. And as was stated here already, all I got to do is is uh, show up, suit up and show up and do the next right thing. And it's not my business. And all I have is today, and what happens today is the important thing, because that's what I have. I sometimes uh, think as I go by a cemetery, you look at the cemetery and uh, what do you see? You see the tombstones, and on the tombstones, what do you see? You see the name of the deceased, and there's two dates. There's the date of birth, date of death, and in between that there's a dash usually three or four inches, and that represents a lifetime. And uh, so when you look at that from the standpoint, if I worry about the past or the future, I, I spoil all that time, and I don't have that much time. And I want to enjoy that. With the time that I have on this earth, I want to enjoy it. And, he, and one of the ways that I can enjoy it is by knowing that I'm going to be all right, and the God of my understanding uh, is going to see that I'm going to be all right. And it's my, my uh, life is not my business. To, to uh, go back and uh, to share my experience, strength, and hope with you, uh, I need to tell you something of my boyhood. We, that's uh, the boy is father, the man. And I grew up uh, in Michigan. Uh, I guess that's a bad word in Ohio. <laughs> Especially I went to the University of Michigan, too. But I'll carry the message somewhere. <laughs> uh, but as, as growing up as a boy... Uh, in, in my family, uh, I was the youngest in a family of four, and I was ashamed of my father. My father was a functional literate. He didn't, he didn't uh, read or write. And my mother had a uh, one year of college, and how they ever got together was a secret. To this date, I don't know how those two ever got together. I have some speculation, but I have no knowledge as to how they got together. But I was ashamed of my father. I, I would never bring any of my friends around because he would embarrass me because he uh, he, he he couldn't uh, he was a, he was a profane man, not obscene, but uh, a lot of that came about because he was not educated and uh, he couldn't read. But I was ashamed of of that. I went to the graveside uh, and made my amends when I one time when I was going through the making my amends, and I went to the graveside and made amends to my father. And I realized today that he did the best he could with what he had, and uh, we didn't starve to death. And uh, uh, that we grew up during the Depression and at a time when no one had a lot. But I, t today I, I'm okay with, with that. I can tell you about him, and, and I'm proud that what he did do uh, uh, and... Uh, and today I don't have to be ashamed of that. And then if I, we hear often the difficulties we have with our parents and the relation, difficulties that we have in relationships. And lots of times uh, our relationships are frozen, and this whole disease of alcoholism is a disease of frozen feelings. And uh, sometimes we feel feelings as a child, and those are carried forward into the adult. And and I had, it, like the case of my father, I had that uh, feeling uh, uh, as a child, but as an adult, I understand that somewhat where he's coming from, and uh, I, I just know that he did what he could do. But growing up in that family, uh, it was, um, there was never any affection shown. Uh, I remember coming into a neighbor's house in the Father would come home and he'd give the wife a hug, and that embarrassed me because I thought that uh, that was uh, uh, something that was reserved for the bedroom. But uh, the today, I, I just uh, when I'm traveling or somewhere where there are people coming and, and going, and you'll see them hug each other, and I and I think that in being in this program and receiving the hugs, it's it's a wonderful thing. It's a feeling that you never need to be alone again, and it's a feeling that that it just makes me feel good, and I, and I enjoyed that. Uh, some of my men friends, my home group is a men's group, 
And uh, we meet every Tuesday in uh, Louisville, and we have about 40 to 50 men uh, in uh, attendance on any given Tuesday. And uh, it's quite of an unusual group. I've been around the country, and I've never seen another men's group quite like that. But I tell them they should go to some other meetings besides uh, the men's meeting. They should go to the regular meetings where there's a lot more women in attendance. I always tell these my friends and sponsees, I said, better go to those meetings. Uh, some of those women got some good recovery, and besides, they hug better. So, <laughs> so at the the uh, but growing up in that family, uh, I was the overachiever in the family, and I I did all of these things. I was a I was a excellent student. Uh, I was a football player. I graduated ahead of my class. I was a uh, uh, class president, and I did all these things because I wanted to be accepted. I didn't do them for for Bob, but I did them because I wanted to be acceptance by the by the groups. I love to be around, uh, as I spoken earlier, love to be around these people uh, where they were drinking because there was so much excitement. And in high school, they used to take me out and. I would go and buy the beer because I had the receding hairline, and so I used to be scared to death, but I would be the one who would go into the liquor store and buy the beer and uh, give it to them so that they could drink it, but I wanted to be accepted. I didn't like the, the stuff particularly, but I, but I wanted to be accepted by the group. And so, so many of the things that I did were generated from the, uh, from the standpoint I wanted that acceptance. So when I got off to college, it was somewhat of the same thing. And my my parents, uh, I, I couldn't get away from home fast enough. And when I got to college, I didn't want to, I didn't want to come home. I just was glad to be there. I worked my way through college, and and that made uh, I was uh, financially uh, independent at an early age. And one of the difficulties in in that uh, that I always uh, took care of myself. But when I finally got somewhere in my life where where I came dead up against the disease of alcoholism, and I learned the the idea of the first step that I was powerless over alcohol in my life was unmanageable. When I learned that, it was so hard to accept because all the time in my life I believed that I could do anything. All I had to do was apply myself, go read about it, work it, and it would all work out. And today, that's not, I understand it, that is not the, the truth, that is not the fact, but it's okay and I know today it's okay because my life is not my, uh, my business. And I know that uh, my life is unmanageable. And uh, But it's okay because there's a power greater than myself that can restore me to sanity. And that's the second step if I make the commitment to turn my life and will over to to my higher power as I understand him. That's, that's the third step. And sometimes I have to work those first three steps on a... Daily basis, one, two, three. They call that the all non waltz. One, two, three, one, two, three. And I have to work those steps every day. Well, uh, as I said, I got on to college, and uh, during college, uh, I guess I was a senior, and the, you know, the great American dream is to, uh, to uh, find one to love and uh, get yourself uh, married and get a little cottage with the roses growing on the white picket fence and and uh, have your 2.2 children and live happily ever after. Well, so I was looking for for someone to 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 save to make a, my life partner and so I'm a senior in college and went into the student center and there was a young lady there with a couple other kids and they needed a fourth for bridge and so here was a young lady and she was skipping class. She was she was having fun. She was about ready to flunk out of school. And this is where I met my first wife. And uh, she, uh, I figured that all she needed was a little direction and the love of a good man. I'd fix her. And uh, so uh, we started a relationship uh, that uh, she was uh, had a couple years more of undergraduate school to, to complete. And I went off to, to law school. And we carried on a long-distance relationship for several years before we both graduated and we got married and went off to Chicago to live and to, to live our our uh, happy life. And uh, it didn't quite work out that way. Uh, surprise. And uh, 
so but eventually we had uh, two little girls and uh there were a lot of crazy things happening and and uh I don't need to to talk about all of that because I'm sure you've all been there done that and heard that and if you've grown up in an alcoholic home my first wife was a was a uh closet drinker and I didn't know what that meant but uh, I never saw her drink much but uh things were crazy uh she she uh, finally came to me. We by this time we got a geographical. I was in Chicago, and when I was offered a job in Cincinnati, I thought, well, this would be the great thing. We'll get her out of Chicago, and she'll get a change in uh, change of scenery, and and she'll get better, and I can take care of her better. So we got down to Cincinnati, and and uh, things didn't get any better. And finally, she decided that she had to go home to mom. She had to. She told me, she says, uh, I'm not capable of being a wife or a mother, and so uh, I'm going home to mother. All I want is some money to go to my psychiatrist. In those days, uh, they didn't talk about treatment. They talked about going to psychiatrist. No one would uh, admit that time that they were suffering from the disease of alcoholism. So at that time, she went off. She took off went home to her mother and I'm raising two little girls. I'm raising at that time the oldest one was about uh, 10 and the other one was about 6. And um I'm meeting Mr. Mom. And uh, if anybody if you'd asked me at that time how things were I would have said fine. You know what fine means? Followed up insecure, neurotic and egotistical. And then I'd give you the Alnon salute. Oh, it's okay. And uh, I'm okay. And, uh, but that's the way things went. I took care, I took care of these, uh, little girls, and by that time we moved to, we had moved to Louisville. And, uh, I'm, uh, taking care and working, and somebody told me that, uh, what I should do is put an ad in the newspaper and get a full-time housekeeper. And, uh, so I did that, and I had about, uh, 30 or 40 women apply for the job, and we had a little, we had a little, uh, family council and I interviewed some of these women and and one of the women who'd answered the the ad was uh, uh, a woman who had uh, a uh, she was a nurse and she had a uh, six-year-old daughter with her and she said the night before her husband had gotten drunk and had beaten her up and she she was trying to get away from him she was looking for a house and all uh, a place to live and all she had was uh, the clothes on her back and a few little things in a bag for the child. And so we had this family uh, conference and decided to hire her as our housekeeper. And uh, we figured, well, there's just another little girl. We had all of the the clothes and toys and everything else. So so we took her in as a housekeeper. And within the week, I'm playing house. And uh, the... Uh, uh, that, that woman said she never had a problem until she met me. I'm sure none of you have ever heard that. But uh, we uh, we told our told our children that uh, we were married. Uh, both of our divorces were still pending, and we lived together for for a uh, a year before we finally ran off to Southern Indiana and got married. But uh, for that year, calling it what it was, I was living in adultery, and. Uh, that's not a that's not a good way to to start marriage, but uh, we had our relationship, and uh, in that particular time with that lady, there were a lot of crazy things happened, and I tell those things not so much to take that lady's inventory, but to uh, show you how sick I was. And one of the one of the things that uh, she said uh, is we were talking one night. She was drinking in her bedroom, and one of the things that. She, we have been talking about is the right to die and so she said that uh, uh, everybody should have the right to die so I'm walking around the house and I came to back to the bedroom and here she was and she had a a uh, mason jar full of pills she worked as a nurse and she was always taking medication and putting in this mason jar well she had taken most of the pills out of that mason jar and she said to me she says well I've done it and I said done what she says, well, I've taken my life. And I said, well, I'll call EMS. And she says, no, remember, you promised. 
And I thought about that, and I said, well, yeah, I did promise her that if she wanted to take her life, that that uh, would be her, her will. I looked at her, and her eyes got glazed, and her speech got slurred, and so she laid down on the bed and went to sleep. And I thought to myself, well, uh, maybe this is the way it's all going to end. Maybe God's going to remove my problem. And so I, I laid down on the bed alongside her, and I said, well, this is... This is the way it's going to end. And so I proceeded to write her obituary, and, and I was thinking, what am I going to tell the kids, and what am I going to do this and that? And I went through the whole, whole rigmarole, and it was very peaceful, and I went to sleep. And, uh, and then I slept for 10, 15 minutes and, and uh, woke up. And, and when I woke up and I realized the, the insanity of the situation and and got her off to the hospital and had her stomach pumped out. And as I look back at that today, the things that are really frightening is that just how sane that seemed at the time. And we all have to agree that it's insane when we sit here today, but that's what this disease does to us, and it does to, it does to the families of alcoholics. And, and many times you've heard the stories about somebody's going off the treatment and they come to take the alcoholic away and they take the Al-Anon away because they're the person who is acting really crazy. <laughs> and uh, the uh, that's what uh, you'll see that in our Alateen speaker, uh, that you can get some of that going on there as to who's the crazy people, not whether it's the alcoholic or the non-drinker. The, um, but anyway, that... Uh, there were some other things going on with that lady that I don't like to talk about, but uh, uh, but it's things that I'm not not too proud of. The, one of the things that she did is that she was uh, carrying on affairs, and uh, she would go out and then come back and tell me about it. And the first time I she told me about it, I put my fist through the wall. That really was a real blow to my ego. But then my ego told me, says, well. She wouldn't have to do this if, if you were a better man, a better lover, a better father, a better provider. If you were better everything, she wouldn't have to do these things. And so uh, instead of throwing her out, I, I took her back in and I said, we're going to fix you so that you don't have to do these things. Still, we get this idea, uh, well, I might have known intellectually that, uh, that I, the marriage was on the rocks and I should throw her out. Uh, I... I because of the fear of abandonment, I, I couldn't do that. And I'd like to say that I'd, in both cases, uh, in both my wives, uh, I threw them out, but that's not the case. They left. They, God was doing for me what I was, or was not capable of. But it, uh, in that case, the other thing that, the other thing that, uh, that lady did is she came to me and she says, you've got to make up your mind. It's either, uh, me or these children. She says, these children, you got to get rid of these children. If you're going to have a relationship with me, you can't have a relationship with these children. Well, I love my children, but I, I would like to say I, I said no, but I didn't do that. My oldest daughter went knew that, and when she got out of high school, she went off and joined the joined the army. And uh, then uh, the 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 younger child, I sent her away to Michigan to live with my sister and and go away to school so that. She didn't uh, have to be confronted with uh, my second wife. I'm not too proud of that. I'm not proud at all of that. But that's how sick this this uh, disease is, how it affects us, and how we end up doing things that we hate ourselves for doing. And we wish that we could go back and, and remake that. I have subsequently made my amends to my daughters, to my oldest daughter, I trying to make an amend to her, and she said, I don't know what you're talking about, Dad, but she said, if you continue to live the way you are living today, that's the biggest amend that you could make for me. That young lady happens to be a member, a sober member of AA and has been there for some 12 years. And uh, it's uh, one of the things uh, that, that uh, in relationship, how that relationship is healed is that uh, she works in the downtown area of uh, of uh, Louisville, where I work, and I, a couple of times a month uh, we have lunch together. And after we started that several years ago, she told me, she says, she says, I really appreciate having uh, lunch with you on a regular basis. She said, I've always known you as a father. 
But she says, I've come to understand uh, and know you as an adult and as an attorney. And she said, I really appreciate that. And so it's having a relationship with an adult child that I never had before. And that, that healing has come. The, uh, the uh, other thing uh, with, this, uh, with my second wife, uh, she came to me and said, uh, she's got a, she said her daughter was living with us, and at that time her daughter was about 16, and she said, we got to do something uh, with uh, Lisa. She's an alcoholic, and we got to put her in treatment. Well, I didn't know anything about uh, that. My wife, my wife at the time, also worked in treatment centers, and she was she took me to my first AA meeting with some of her clients. And all I remember at that time was a lot of smoke and a lot of coffee. We still got the coffee, but I'm glad the smoke is no longer here. But that was my first. Uh, uh, AA meeting and it was when she was taking some of her clients to to a meeting. Well, uh, what finally happened is that she was working as, in the uh, adolescent center in Louisville, so we had to send her, the stepdaughter off to treatment in Chattanooga, and so she went to Chattanooga into treatment. And after she'd been there a little while, she started confronting her mother, and she said to her mother, "She says, when are you going to do something about your?" drug and alcohol problem. And uh, finally, uh, my wife came to me and she said, uh, uh, I'm going to treatment. I'm going down there to Chattanooga and I'm going to go to treatment. And I said, well, fine, if that's what you need. So I put her on an airplane and, and she went down there. And uh, on Easter Sunday, uh, I went down to family week. And I hadn't been there more than more than a couple of days and this wife and a counselor confronted me, and she says, you're an alcoholic, and unless you go to treatment, we're all through. And so I called my boss, and I said, well, they tell me I'm an alcoholic. He said, well, I didn't know you were an alcoholic. I said, I didn't know I was an alcoholic either, but I said, that's what they're telling me i got to do. Whatever, if, if that's what it would take to get her sober, well, then I'm an alcoholic, and I'll go to treatment. And uh, so... So you know, I I knew my insurance I knew my insurance wasn't going to pay for it unless I told them I was an alcoholic and that's a this a truthful program and I've dealt with that over the years and actually I got treatment I'm one of the few Alanons that got treatment for alcoholism. <laughs> the, uh, so I'm in treatment and after after a week the stepdaughter left and after another week in the middle of the night uh, this wife uh, just disappeared. I had driven down there, and so she took all of her, her all of her things, and threw them in the car, and booked, and drove home to uh, Louisville. And I'm still in treatment. <laughs> and uh, his counselor came to me, and he said, uh, "He said I don't know if you're an alcoholic or not, but and he said I don't like to tell you this, but unless you do something about your obsession for this woman, you're never going to get well." And I was scared to death. And uh, they uh, they called me a couple days later, and they said, you got a telephone call. And it was my wife. And I was scared to death, and I refused to take the call. And next night she called again, and this time I took the call. And she says, you've got to get out of that place. She says, they'll screw your mind up. She says, uh, you're not an alcoholic, and if you don't leave there, uh, we're all through. And I said, well, wait a minute. First, you tell me I am an alcoholic, and if I don't go to treatment, we're all through. Now you're telling me I'm not an alcoholic, and I don't leave treatment, we're all through. And she says, yes. <laughs> so, for the first time in my life, I, I, I said, no. I, I said, uh, I'm going to stay here. And I was scared to death, but I was able to say no. I've often said I'm glad I'm not a woman. I've been pregnant all the time because I don't know how to say no. But I said, so I said no, and uh, I didn't know what was going to happen. But I was in what I considered a safe place, and she says, well, I'm out of here. And so uh, I finished the five weeks in treatment. And But in treatment, you know, they send you out to these AA meetings, and when I'd go out to these AA meetings, we'd go by the room in the back. And I said, what's that? And they said, that's Al-Anon. That's for friends and families. And I started looking over there. And very early on, I, I realized where I belonged. Well, I, after five weeks, I got out of there and I went home. Well, she, the wife had moved out, 
She'd moved into an apartment. But since I was cured well now, I went and talked her back into coming, uh, to coming home again. I went back and negotiated a settlement on her lease at this apartment that she'd signed, and I brought her home again. But I told her there was going to be some changes. And for the first time, I, I said, I'm, she was going to AA, and I said, well, I'm going to Al-Anon. And I started going to Al-Anon, and there were some other changes that, that uh, uh, were going to happen. And, and one of the things that she came back, and she says, well, I met this guy in AA, and I said, I don't want to hear any more about it. And she says, well, I think you ought to hear about this. I said, no. I said, it's none of my business. If you, were, if you want to get in a, a relationship, don't come tell me about it. Just go off. And... Uh, that was an improvement on my part that I was able to get by things like that. Uh, as I said, uh, that lasted uh, about uh, a couple of months after we got out of treatment, and she finally, she finally uh, just left and said that she couldn't live with me anymore. And so she left and uh, uh, went to live with her with her uh, daughter, who had her own apartment. And uh, there again, I'd like to, you know, I, as I said earlier, I'd like to say I threw her out that I knew what where it should be, but I didn't. Left to my own devices, I'd still been trying to fix her. But I, I immediately, when I got out of treatment, I went to Al-Anon, and I started going to the Al-Anon, and I knew that's where I belonged. And uh, the I got a sponsor, and I started doing the things that Al-Anon tells me that I need to do. They told me there's no must in this program, but there's a few damn betters and uh, listed them for me. And one of those things was to get a sponsor and, and to work the steps. But I didn't know much about the steps or the traditions, but I did know I could do something about a sponsor. And I, and I asked the man to be my sponsor, and he's still my sponsor today. But one of the things that uh, uh, he told me, he said, uh, you don't need any women in your life. What you need to do is just to... To uh, go to meetings and and work your program, and uh, stay away from these women, and uh, you don't need you don't need a, her in your life in order to have a complete life. And uh, so, for the next couple of years, I that's what I did. Uh, I uh, I worked the steps the best of my ability, but I really never understood the steps until sometime later when, when I married uh, Camille, after I married Camille, and she talked to you uh, about the Denver group. And I got to meet some of these people like Gary and Don Roy. I just used to love to go down to Nashville when he was alive. And, and I found people having, having fun. I respected them, and uh, I, wanted, I wanted to have what they had. And, uh, but the... My sponsor, one of the other things my sponsor told me to do, he said, uh, he says in a year, uh, there's going to be, uh, an international, Al-Anon's going to have their first international conference. This was in 1985. They're having their first conference in Montreal and you should sign up and go for a workshop and go up there and participate. Which I did. And when the time came to go, I probably would not have gone but for the fact that I'd made that commitment. And that morning in the Midwest, the flights were all screwed up because of weather, and I ended up in Philadelphia and then Boston and from Boston on into Montreal. And when I got on the plane in, in uh, Boston, uh, there weren't many people on it. I don't even know what the, what the airline was. I think it was God's airline. And uh, I, I got on that uh, airplane, and there weren't many people on it, but there was a young lady sitting next to me, and as you well can surmise, it was Camille. And uh, she had her knee in a walking cast, and we started talking. And I said, where are you going? She said, Montreal. And I said, well, I'm going to Montreal. I said, what are you going to Montreal for? And she said, convention. I said, well, I'm going to convention, too. I said, AA or Al-Anon. We're so anonymous, you know. <laughs> and she says, AA. And I said, well, I'm one of the others. And so we started talking some more, and, and she said, we got to talk. And I said, where are you staying? And she gave, gave me the name of the hotel. I'm staying in the same hotel. And I said, oh, this is right up my alley. I said, uh, I can take care of this. I said, you've got your knee in a walking cast. And I said, I'll, I'll help you through customs. We'll get you a wheelchair and we'll, we'll uh, uh, get your bags and we can share a cab, go down to the hotel. She said, well, that sounds pretty good. So we get, the, we get down to her hotel and, and uh, 
We get checked in, and I find out that she's staying in a suite just above mine. Uh, my, I had a bedroom right below her floor where she had the suite. And so uh, I said, well, I'll help you take your bags up there. She's got three or four bags, and I got my little bag. And, and we go uh, up to the room, and I throw my bag in there, and I notice I got two double beds in that room. So I go upstairs with her, and uh, these women are all running around. They're all discombobulated as alcoholics tend to be. And I said, what's the problem here? I'll fix it. And uh, <laughs> so they said uh, they were short beds that uh, Anne had put this this uh, trip together and invited all these women from from. Um, from uh, Denver to attend, but she had she, instead of having uh, the right number of uh, beds, she didn't. So I said, "Well, I got two beds in my room." I said, "Your ladies are are happy, uh, are welcome to use it." Well, I had a little probably different ideas than they had, but they got very protective of Camille, and and they, uh, but they did send two of their elderly contingent down, and <laughs> I. I gave them a key, and they'd, they'd get dressed up in the, the suite, and then they'd sneak down the back uh, back stairway. And they'd, and um, this one little old lady who's now dead, but she, uh, when we later got married, she she um, came to our wedding. We got married out in Col- in Colorado, and Don Pritz officiated. And uh, this little lady uh, come up to Camille and gave her a, a box of high-powered uh, earplugs, and she said, "Remember, I slept with him first." <laughs> So, but that that started a relationship. That started a relationship that uh, it was a long distance relationship, and we became friends before we became uh, lovers. And that was quite a concept. And uh, I was doing a lot of of, of commuting. I was doing a lot of uh, uh, work uh, all over the country at that particular time, and so I would make sure that my trips took me through Denver. And we started a long-distance relationship that lasted several years. And then uh, she said to me, this was she was in equine school, and she wanted to, wanted to uh, come to Louisville and interview for an internship uh, with, a, with a, a, a horse doctor and a veterinarian. He was an OBGYN doctor. And uh, so she went out to see him, and she came back and said uh, that uh, he'd offered her a job, and he wanted her to start immediately. This was like in January, and in the horse industry, all the foaling is done in the first six months of the year. So they were in the in the uh, throes of that. And so she said, well, I don't know whether I should take that job or I should go back to Colorado and go back to school. And I said, well, come live with me. I'm living alone here. I said, you can come live with me. And she said to me, she said, uh, I lived with a man once for eight years, and I made up my mind I'm never going to live with a man again unless I married him. And I said, well, I've been married to two alcoholics, and I'm not about to take on a third. (laughs) So we compromised and got married. (laughs) And that started another adventure. You know, life is an adventure. Uh, it just, uh, you know, life uh, has got to either be a glorious adventure or it's nothing. And I've come to understand that it's what we make it. I mean, in life, if, if again, it goes back to living one day at a time. If you start worrying about what's going to happen uh, tomorrow or what's happened yesterday, you're going to lose. You're going to lose the happiness of the adventure today. The adventure should be. And just seeing what God's got out there for us rather than trying to figure out what we should do that when it's presented to us. Uh, in many cases, we got the, you know, we got the motto says, uh, uh, let live, uh, let God let live. And in many cases, in my case, I was, I've heard of people who've had spiritual awakenings and I've always believed in a God, but I think that I put my God in a box, that I limited him, that I would I would come up with a game plan what I needed to do and I'd say God this is the game plan and help me do it help me to do this thing that I that I've got to do and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't but I never blame God for that I always blame myself because I didn't have the right plan 
And so I would plot and plan, and then I'd come back to God, and I'd say, okay, God, this is the new game plan, and help me with this. And then I would be able to sleep. Otherwise, I couldn't sleep, but I would say my prayers at night, and I'd say, God, this is this is what I want to uh, do. And, and, uh, and when it didn't work, I never blamed God. I just felt... I uh, I need a new game plan, but I began to understand that this was not uh, letting go and letting God. And lots of times it's like I'd go to sleep at night and, and say my prayers and tell God what I wanted. It was like God was a magnificent Santa Claus, and I'd give him my list that I wanted, my wish list. And when I woke up in the morning, I just wouldn't turn that over to God. I'd say, okay, God, I had my night of rest, and now I'll go out there and and fight the battle, because I thought that was... My ego told me it was my my God. There was a God of my understanding, but my understanding was that I had to go out there and do the things that uh, God uh, were actually God's jobs. But I felt that it was my duty to go out and do these things, not only for me, but for you and for people around me. I felt that was my my job. But I've come to understand that any time you go, especially for another person, if you interject yourself and do for them the things that they can do for themselves, you take away from them the God-given right of success or failure. And what we do as Al-Anons, so often we do this, we rush in and we, as I said earlier, we do this under the guise of helping when really we're not helping a bit. And when the only way you can stop from doing that is to have a God of your understanding. Everybody has their higher power and everyone uh, should be turning to their higher power rather than uh, my rushing in and doing something and acting as if they are the higher power. I can't, in my marriage, I can't be Camille's higher power. I often think that there are many times, especially today, she's miles away from me and we talk often uh, three or four times a day and sometimes I wish that I could rush in and take care of things. The distance prohibits that, but I've learned that whether there was distance or not, that she's much better off by solving her own problems in certain areas without me rushing in to take care of it. Well, one of the things uh, in our relationship uh, with, uh, uh, in our journey, in our marriage, as I said earlier, she uh, uh, introduced me to a lot of these people that, were big book uh, uh, people, and as I said earlier, when I started working the steps and the traditions, I really didn't understand them until I started working them through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, in our program, they tell me I shouldn't mention the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous because they say that's not our literature, it's AA literature, but it was only through working the steps in the big book that I truly understood uh, the steps and how they worked, and I really had the 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 uh, the opening in my mind, the opening of knowing there is a solution, in that fourth chapter of the big book where it says God's everything or is nothing, and I began to understand that, and I had I understood that I have to turn my in that third step I have to turn my life and will over to the God uh, to God of my understanding I have to make that commitment, and when I do that, uh, that's that's everything will work out. Uh, in that first step, you know, where they talk about my life is unmanageable, uh, the first part says that I'm, I'm powerless over alcohol. I used to think that meant uh, I couldn't hold my liquor. Well, that wasn't the problem. The problem was the second part, and my life is unmanageable. Today I understand my life is unmanageable, and I know that my life will always be unmanageable. But it's okay, because I do have a God of my understanding, that God will who's doing for me the things that I can't do, and all I have to do is show up on a daily basis. And this is what I learned from some of uh, the members of AA that, uh, that uh, Camille introduced me to. Well, shortly after I, uh, oh, probably 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I started uh, a big book study group with some men in Al-Anon. And um, uh, Julie... Uh, uh, was able to give me a, a skeleton outline of what they used in Denver, and using that in some tapes, and uh, we we started on a Sunday morning having a, and uh, 
we've continued that for a period of years and did inventory and worked the steps to the best of our ability. And so today, there is better literature available in Al-Anon than there's ever been before. There's a book, Pathways to Recovery, which has a great discussion. But there was also, uh, there were also, uh, uh, in, in the early years when I came into Al-Anon, there wasn't a lot of, of literature uh, available. Although I, I talked to several old-time members who supposedly talked to Lois Wilson, who made the statement that in the early years it was just assumed that the Al-Anons were all reading the big book. And uh, so the early literature of uh, Al-Anon just assumed that everybody was reading the big book. But uh, that may be in dispute, but that's just been my perception that that came from pretty good sources. Well, anyway, Camille, as she told you, went back to school and started studying, and, and uh, that left a big uh, gap in my life. She spent a lot of time uh, working, uh, studying, especially when she was working on her doctorate. She was gone, and I would say, when you're coming home, and she'd, she'd stay there all night sometimes, and... I'd call her up in the middle of the night, when you coming home? When you coming home? And uh, uh, I, I, if it wasn't for our mutual programs, our marriage would never have survived. But I realized that, that she was doing for her what she felt was best for her, and I became very proud of the things that she was doing. And I had the love and, and friendship of my friends in the program, both programs, uh, one of the stories uh, I like to tell is uh, uh, Camille was studying this one weekend, and we had tickets for the symphony, and she was supposed to be home at uh, at like uh, seven, by no later than seven thirty. The thing started at eight. Well, she came home about five ten minutes late, and I said, "Well, where have you been?" And she got very upset with that, and she said, uh, "You go, go alone." She says, "I'm." She says, I, I don't want to go. So I said, okay. So I went. I got in the car and I went. And when I came back a couple hours later, there was a note on the counter on the, in the kitchen that said, you want to be alone? You can be alone. She says, I'm out of here. And then all of the television uh, controllers were all broken up and laying around the, in, the, in the room. And, and uh, I didn't know what to do. So I called my sponsor. You know, when all else fails, call your sponsor. And uh, he said, uh, uh, he said, uh, you know the book, uh, uh, the dilemma of the alcoholic marriage. And I said, well, yeah, I got it. I got it right here. And he says, well, go read it. And I said, I read it a long time ago. And he said, well, read it again. You can read it in a couple hours. And so I did. I spent that that whole evening reading and rereading that that book. And uh, early in the morning, on a Sunday morning, because we met this big book study group, we'd meet at 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning for about three hours. Well, at 9 o'clock, about eight guys showed up, uh, all Al-Anons, and I started telling them about my story of my wife running off from home, and I didn't know where she was. And and uh, they they uh, said, well, then we started talking about that relationship. And so one of the guys says, well, he says, I'm a, I'm a cook, so let's cook some breakfast stuff. So he went over and started cooking and a couple of other guys started talking to me, and one guy said, well, I'm an engineer. I'll put these controllers together. And so that meeting that morning, they just focused on me, and they loved me. And I received, uh, I just received the love of those men, and uh, it was a type of love that I never, I'd never experienced before. But they just took care of me when I didn't feel very lovable at that particular time. And they have continued to do that, that uh, and that's one of the that's one of the uh, fringe benefits that the program gives to us. And uh, as I said, we don't know exactly where we're going. All of it depends. I'd like to retire, and and Camille would like to to be uh, licensed up in Canada, so I could move up there, or she could move home again. So uh, we would get a resolution of this particular thing. We do know that it will be resolved within the next month. And then we'll know. And someone said, well, aren't you afraid that she won't get licensed? And I said, it's really not up to me. It's a God thing. And this whole, this whole uh, experience has been a God thing. We've been, we've been uh, fortunate to uh, uh, 
been able to do and see some things in the last uh, almost three years, and either one or other of us is traveling every other weekend, uh, uh, commuting to, uh, to be together. And as she told you, our relationship is stronger than it's ever been. And I don't know how that all works, but it works, and that's what's important. And uh, in this book, The Dilemma of the Alcoholic Marriage and in the Relationship, I'd like to, you know, this little book, one of the nice things about it, and I didn't realize it until my sponsor told me to reread it, but at the end of the book, there's, there's a, a writing for each of the steps and how they might apply in, in an alcoholic relationship. And I'd like to read what it says for step three, which says make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. It says, am I ready to make this decision to let go and let God take a hand in managing my life? Am I ready to keep hands-off situations created by others no matter what happens? Or will I still try to intercept each problem and try to handle it myself? Do I understand that I am turning over the care of God, only my own life and will, only my own problems, nobody else's. Will I try to express his will in all my actions and words towards others, and particularly towards the alcoholic whose sufferings I cannot understand or share? And in my relationship with the alcoholics in my life, I've come to accept that and be a part of my life. And this is an exciting time. Life is exciting. And if, if we get born, if we get, uh, overwhelmed with life and we, and into the poor me's that can confront us and confuse us, we lose the opportunity to, to enjoy the day. And I'm, I'm big on that and, and I'm big on this program because it has saved my life and it continues to lead me down the path where I think there's, there's more excitement to, to happen out there. Sometimes I got a, problem with my back right now, and I don't know where that's going to end, but it's all part of an adventure, and I know it's going to be all right, and uh, I may be impatient, but the God of my understanding understands my impatience at times. But this program is very important, and in, in conclusion, I'd like to say that I hope that for each and every one of you, that this program becomes a, a important thing in your life, and it's it, I wish you happiness and joy and wealth and good health. But most of all, I, I wish for you a, a, a desire to work this program in your life. And in leaving, I would like to uh, read you a little poem. It says, God is like Coke. He's the real thing. God is like bare aspirin. He works wonders. God is like Hallmark cards. He cares enough to send the very best. God is like VO hairspray. He works in all kinds of weather. God is like dial soap. Aren't you glad you know him? Don't you wish everyone would? God is like scotch tape. You can't see him, but you know he's there. God is like the American Express card. Don't leave home without him. Again, thank you for inviting me. Again, I wish for you all of the good things in life, and especially I wish for you the love and peace and growth of this program. And if nobody else has told you today that they love you, I love you. Thank you.